was talking to a friend of mine. I, I really wish like people went to a mental health professional the way they go to the dentist. You go twice a year, you right. check in, and then there's... But like I wish it was just something that generally people were like, yeah, this is just something you do for your general health. Like you go to the primary care, you go to a mental health professional. Hey, y'all. You're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Kick back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial topics and answer scientific questions. Ranging from health and nutrition to behavioral risks and climate change. I'm Dr. Taylor Wallace. And I'm Dr. Shatha Chakraborty. Together, we'll loosen lips and spill tea with special guests you will not want to miss. Dr. Swati Divakarla is a board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. She has her own private practice and also works in one of the community hospitals in Washington, D.C. She treats both kids as well as adults and provides both medication management and psychotherapy services. In addition to clinical work, she supervises and teaches at Georgetown University and is involved in public health advocacy. Given her own experience as a second-generation immigrant in the South Asian community, she also carries a personal interest in mental health issues specific to and affecting minority and immigrant populations. So Swati, Dr. Divar Karla, thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to have you because this is a really relevant and timely conversation. We are still in the midst of lockdown. Some places are opening up more than others, but here in Washington, it's a little bit better. Let's, let's get an idea of who you are, what you do, and give us kind of from your vantage point, the landscape of what's been going on with COVID and mental health. Yeah. So to start, um, yeah, like you said, so I'm a pediatric and adult psychiatrist. Um, what that means for anyone that doesn't know what a psychiatrist does, uh, I'm a medical doctor. And then so after medical school, I did my residency in psychiatry. Um, it was four years and then two years of a child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship. And so psychiatrists generally, we, our specialty is in prevention, assessment, and treatment of mental health disorders. And usually that's by means of psychotherapy and pharmacological interventions. So how does that differ for, for our audience? How does it differ from psychology? So psychologists and psychiatrists, I know the term is used like interchangeably a lot of the times uh, for anyone that's actually providing therapy services. So for example, I am a psychotherapist, but I also prescribe medications. And because I'm a medical doctor, that distinguishes me from a psychologist. A psychologist right. has a doctorate degree um, but they do a lot more training in terms of the therapeutic services and their PhDs like us. Right. And then they also do a lot more like psychometric testing. So they'll use like IQ so testing, are you like... personality testing, all that fun <laughs> stuff in order to get a better assessment of like how their brain is functioning. So you're like the Dr. Diva that Mike Pence uses to like electroshock therapy on gays like me. You know, uh, <laughs> well, okay, so no, well, they, they stopped doing that on me a long time ago. That's now considered unethical. So, but progress. Um, but yeah, so psychiatrists are actually the ones that do ECT as well. Okay, so. cool. Mm-hmm. I so, think that's an important distinguish yeah. to distinguish between the two because I think a lot of people use it so interchangeably. Yeah. So you have a private practice, and you have been at the forefront of this because we talk a lot about healthcare professionals at the front lines. 
we often overlook mental health and the mental health care workers that are playing such a critical role in what has been the impact, not just physically on people, not just, you know, having the disease as a primary impact, but what is the toll it's been taking on people's mental health? What's it been like from your vantage point? I will say, so having just finished my fellowship, being in my first year at a fellowship and having my private practice, I was really worried initially about like what this year was gonna be like, right? Like my first year of working, um, and then all of this stuff starts happening. And I will say, I don't think in my medical career, and I obviously isn't that long, I don't think I've ever been as inspired and proud of doing what I do as I have felt in the last few months. And I think a lot of that has to do with like, one, the medical community has really come together in a way that like, it, it just doesn't happen. You know, like a lot of us, we go through training, we, in medical school and in training, we're all like, you know, we're all buddies, we all like know each other, but then like as we subspecialize, we all become a little bit more isolated. And for one, for once in a long time, like you're seeing all of these healthcare workers, all of these physicians are completely united, right? you know, and really like going after this larger purpose. And on the mental health side, when you think about it, like when mental health has only been gaining traction, like for some couple years and even that hasn't been enough right you know and so it's been a really cool time to see like how what we can do at this time and like having the opportunity to be supportive of those in the healthcare let's dig down into the healthcare field because i think that's something really interesting and under recognized mm -hmm. do you think healthcare workers that are on the front line are getting the mental health services that they might need. I mean, they're obviously watching people on ventilators, dying, uh, you know, undergoing some pretty um, intense sickness. Um, are they getting the help that they need to continue to be that pillar that they are right now? So short answer, no. And the longer answer I give is that I think that the mental health and wellness has been definitely an area of focus in the recent years for a lot of residency programs because of the number of suicides and the rate of depression among like physicians. However, I think in this recent, actually interestingly, because in COVID, this is actually one of the first pandemics where we are going to be able to like get data on the actual mental health effects of healthcare workers during a pandemic like this. Yeah. The first time they actually started collecting data like that about the mental health effects was during the SARS pandemic. And it didn't and last long enough. No, right? it didn't last long enough. And it also, and then it was still so new. And so they didn't really collect as much information. So a lot of the data that we have about how healthcare workers were responding is simply extrapolated from either what we know about trauma and how people respond to trauma or just based on like recent data that we're getting. So it's actually a new topic really. Um, I've actually been really fortunate to be a part of an initiative called the Physician Support Line. So over the last couple months, the Physician Support Line has actually done a fantastic job. It's like over 300 psychiatrists that have all volunteered time to basically have a call center like on the whim, like basically any frontline worker any physician can call the call center and there is two psychiatrists available to speak to. We speak to them, provide them supportive, you know, sessions. We talk to them about whatever's going on. They don't have to be frontline necessarily. It could be literally about anything. They can be stressed about work, stressed about home, stressed about anything, but this is, it's been a great initiative. Right. So is this kind of effort also, are we seeing it kind of trickle down to various communities? Those that have access to healthcare all the way down to those more vulnerable that may not? And we were talking about this a little bit before, is 
what is what is the disparities between those who have access versus those who don't to mental health? Who yeah. are the ones who are really suffering? Because it sounds like there is being a push for frontline workers to have that access. But what about those who can afford it versus those who can't versus the people in the middle? So interestingly, I think these services for mental health care are generally like they're there for people that are in the lower socioeconomic status population. Oh, that's counterintuitive. You know, it, it is, but actually over time, traditionally, when you actually look at the population of people that are most affected by mental illness, you see them in poverty. You see them below the poverty line. And so therefore, the service is actually offered by a lot of Medicaid, like state Medicaid programs, do support um, that population pretty decently well, better right. than before. Um, but you know, decently well. And then likewise, there is the population, you know, of people that have the higher socioeconomic status and they're also, they're able to pay out of pocket, right? Or they have the really good insurance or they have the means to kind of financially pay for right. it. And so they're, they're also quite protected. Who we're missing really is in the, the people in the middle. Huh. Is, is that a socioeconomic thing or is that mental health and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just my opinion, has been kind of a back burner issue, right? I'm worried about, you know, getting the paycheck in this month. I'm working a couple of jobs. So, you know, dealing with my own mental health in the middle class mm -hmm. isn't the easiest thing to do. It, it's kind of a back burner issue. Yeah. I myself am in that group, right? And I think about like when I access my own care, you know, and as a psychiatrist, I think a lot of us go to therapy and we decide, you know, it's a really good thing to invest in and even do my, my own. Like you have to jump through hoops, right? You have to make sure you have a good health insurance plan and maybe the plan will cover a certain amount, but then the people that are covered under your plan, psychiatrists at least, like are not always the ones that are providing both psychotherapy and medication management. So you might be seeing one person for therapy, you might be seeing one person for meds and like there's split treatment there. In addition, you have high deductibles and then for people that are going out of network, they sometimes don't have the same benefits or you have to apply for reimbursement and every plan is so different in terms of what they actually reimburse. So for example, I like in the recent weeks, I had this one insurance plan, I won't mention who they are, but um, who, you know, because mental health has taken the back burner, they were approving of nutrition therapy, and this is right down your alley, they were approving of nutrition therapy for people that were diabetic and approving it for people that were obese, but they weren't approving it for a patient of mine that has an eating disorder. And there's so much evidence to support right. that nutrition therapy is such an important part of, of eating disorder disorders. Yeah. And it was just, no matter how many letters I wrote, how many people I called, like we're basically taking up to the state commissioner at this point because, wow. we, because there's nothing else you can do. Yeah. So mental health has definitely taken like, yeah. In fact, I would say in the, in the area of nutrition, some of the strongest data is for eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So we're talking at the policy level, and a lot of listeners have been firsthand, day in and day out, experiencing whatever spectrum of mental health issues um, from maybe just acute, specific to that day, to something more chronic, rather than me trying to attempt to explain what that range is like. Give us, a, give us an idea, as a mental health professional, what is the range of experiences that people have been having? What is it normal, what isn't? Let's get into what is helpful for listeners. Yeah. So there are a lot of different types of treatment. The design of mental health treatment is to keep people in the least restrictive level of care. However, we want to make sure that people feel comfortable being at home and accessing mental health care, right? So for example, we'll have inpatient care in a hospital, 
And that's for the people that are the most sick, that are not safe or stable to be outside the hospital. And then there's step-down programs, which are kind of like, like school, right? Mm -hmm. So like five day a week, you go there and you go there during the day, you come home at night. And so that's kind of like a step down from the inpatient. And beyond that, they have things called intensive and outpatient programs, which is like three days a week, you do an evening for a couple hours. And then a step down from that would be general outpatient care. And that would be just medication management or psychotherapy. And even in psychotherapy, people sometimes go weekly, sometimes people go twice a week, some people go every other week to every month. So and that really also varies. is tell. I mean, that's also now changed into virtual, right? Yeah, so it's the same sort of thing, mm-hmm. but just virtual and stuff. So everything has changed to virtual, and actually, so the outpatient, the strict outpatient care, was the easiest to change to a hundred percent virtual, yeah. right? Because traditionally, inpatient or higher levels of care require that sometimes in partial hospitalization programs or intensive outpatient programs, so much of the treatment even there is group therapy, right. and that wasn't possible with COVID. We couldn't have people at a six foot distance and wearing masks and trying to pick up facial and subtle cues. And right. so the treatment was very different. So now they're doing a lot of that on Tele too, but it took a little bit of time to actually figure out yeah. for a lot of programs how they were going to make it, make it work. You know, we've had a lot of uprisings, I would say, in the past, you know, alongside COVID-19, whether it be, you know, Black Lives Matter, there's been issues brought up in the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, I'm not a huge social media person, but my friends are. It's getting pretty heated out there. I mean, I think there are some personalities that, you know, the stress level and the amount of anxiety really show on social media. It leads into a question, how does social media play into all of this? So, you know what? I think social media has played such a large role in terms of getting access to news, getting access to just education, getting access to others that are like you right now. Right. Um, and it's such a huge avenue and portal for self-expression. And so, but at the end of all of that, like everyone still has very different coping styles. Some people are very comfortable being very public about the things that they want to talk about or the things that they're feeling. Other people are not comfortable doing that. Um, so it all kind of comes down to like who that person is. The other thing I've actually noticed a lot about social media recently is, you know, I mean, depending on what social media like platform you go to, like I think it's actually quite amusing to see how people use humor and how people find resilience in in social media because there's a community that you build in finding out that like you're not the only one struggling with this, right? You know, that you're not the only one stuck at home, and there was almost like a you know, well before you could have like shamed the person that had mental health issues and did something bad. Now you're like shaming the person who doesn't wear a mask outside. We're used to always talking about social media in such a negative way in the past that I I think really like we have to start looking at it good. Like what, what can it do? expressing themselves outside of COVID that are also experiencing issues and mental health issues, but because so much of the tension and focus is COVID that is there almost this guilt of, okay, I have other issues. I have other health issues and mental issues, but because I haven't necessarily been affected by COVID, I better not speak out. I better not use the tool that is social media. What do you think about that? I've actually found that to be quite a problem recently. So I think it's pretty natural for most people and for society. I think about the way we're raised, right? If you're not dying, you're okay. 
But yeah. Like, you know, when you're... Especially when you, Indian people. No, yeah. And like, you know, <laughs> you, get, you get hurt, your feelings get hurt, and then you're jumping to fixing the problem as opposed to like validating the person, right? That's just kind of how we're all raised to think and how we all are, we almost are wired to be and taught to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think more recently, I've seen that a lot where it's, people are struggling because whether COVID has directly affected them or indirectly affected them, people have lost significant others they have had lost their just normal death or cancer or you know whatever it might be and like people are weddings are canceled people's funerals are unattended and like they're still going through grief they're still going through loss and they don't a lot of them are struggling to communicate just how bad they're feeling because they're like well you know i feel like because you know everyone's talking about covid maybe this is just not so important right now and like or the first sentence out of anyone's mouth is, well, I know that I still have it good, but like, you know, and it's almost like everyone has to try to like justify, you know, justify that, it. Yeah. Does that make people snap more on social media? You know, all of this stress that people are undertaking, does that, you know, exemplify, you know, what's going on in the White House, you know? To some degree, right? So most of us, if we, you know, when we talk about defense mechanisms that people have and like how they tolerate stress, some people displace anger right or they displace grief or they displace you know anxiety and so you know where they can't express it in one way it'll come out in a different way so it, it definitely still finds them i just and smoke a lot of pot <laughs> let's talk about what people are feeling and experiencing so your day in and day out with your patients obviously you can't give us any details in that sense but generally what are people's anxieties what is it that you see as trends and what is some advice you can give generally? I totally appreciate that we're not giving one-on-one yeah. advice here, but yeah, yeah. So I think how you know things in the recent months has impacted people falls into a couple different categories. I'd say so. One of the most common things to happen in the mental health world is that people that have otherwise other underlying mental health issues or pre-existing mental health issues or pre-existing anxiety or depression have an exacerbation of symptoms during this time. Okay. So a lot of times it's that something that they were already struggling with, their meds and their therapy and everything was going really well and that regimen was working fantastic and then all of a sudden it's not working because the symptoms are getting worse. Yeah. So that's one thing that definitely I'm seeing a lot more. You know, another thing would be what we call like more acute stress or adjustment disorders. So that's that's mainly like when a stressor happens or when a loss happens, like how do you deal with that? So whether it is like PTSD related and people are experiencing like moral injury, they're experiencing like flashbacks, they're thinking about it all, all of a sudden, they're, they get startled very easily, they're thinking about these intrusive memories of this terrible thing that happened that they've witnessed, that can sometimes happen. So, and then what we call adjustment disorders is more like mood and anxiety that come up as a result of the things that are going on. So those are all kind of like the, the major things that we see. Aside from that, I'd say it's a little bit different when you talk about kind of how society responds to disasters. There's actually like a whole field of psychiatry devoted to disasters. And I think actually COVID probably falls underneath that category to some degree where it's actually pretty predictable how society responds. Like, so there's like a pre-disaster period, there's a impact period, there's a honeymoon period when generally everyone's like, oh, called to action and like wants to do all this stuff. And then there's all this heroism and community cohesion. And after that comes this period of disillusionment where people are now coming to terms with like, oh, exactly what they need versus what they're getting. And like the, all of that heroism and all of that 
you know, community cohesion starts to fall apart and there's a lot more triggers and a lot more anxiety. So that's another thing that kind of happened. Do you think we're in that, that phase now? So I think, I will say that I think the different states are probably feeling it a little bit differently because right. the timeline has been different. But I do think the role that mental health plays in each of those phases is actually different. And so we have to tailor our approach to where we are. So mental health often, we have to tailor our approach to what phase of disaster they're actually in. So whether we're doing, uh, we're just trying to identify the most vulnerable populations or whether we're doing prevention and kind of like brief supportive care of frontline workers or disaster relief workers um, to then like treatment of who then, now that we've identified the brief kind of adjustment disorders and you know acute stress, which is more of like the month mark kind of issues, when things prolong and they last more than a month and they last a couple months and we jump into the treatment area. When are you most concerned about your patients? At what stage? And I wanna get to this even though it's uncomfortable, are you seeing an increased likelihood of worse patient outcomes when these types of disasters happen? So what I'm getting at is, should we expect more suicides coming out of something like this? Or what is the spectrum of outcomes if we don't tackle it head on? As of the data that, the early data that's come out so far, I actually think that, I believe I've read that the suicide rates have already been higher than usual. Yeah. Um, since the shutdown, since COVID has actually started to affect the US. And you know, it, what's interesting is it's not a direct effect of COVID causes suicide, right? Um, but it's actually, the effect of people feeling, you know, unsupported, people feeling like they don't have the services, that they're isolated, they don't have access to the reminders and the validation and the support that they had otherwise. And there's also a good population of people that are in very toxic living environments that, you know, are now kind of sheltered in those places and don't have an option to be outside. And with reduced access to services, it really puts them at higher risk. Yeah, I mean, I we've been talking about this from <laughs> from the beginning. Is that there's ripple effects from the primary impact of COVID change. So not just did I say COVID change? <laughs> that was COVID <laughs> and climate change climate together. Change wow, I just said COVID change. That might be a new hashtag that I start using. <laughs> so there's been primary impacts of COVID, which is death, right? But then there's also ripple effects that also lead to ultimately to death, including mental health outcomes like suicide. And so are these being factored in as far as you're concerned to the big picture and the question that we're looking at in terms of like, we're addressing COVID. What about the mental health impacts of it? Well, I think to answer simply, like I think right now the statistics that are coming out are generally just the COVID deaths, right? We're yeah. looking at COVID deaths and then we're looking at, and we just started adding, like, and you know this better than I do, but probable COVID deaths yeah, to the right, list, right? right? So that doesn't even come close to including the other deaths that have happened by nature of other medical issues just mm -hmm. decompensating because people are not right. getting access to care, are scared to go to the hospital, are scared to go back to the doctor, even though now like they're starting to lift restrictions, there's still a good number of people that are right. scared to go. Um, and what that's actually gonna do, I think initially when, initially during COVID and during all this, during all this stuff, and when all the COVID patients were in the hospital, I remember so many colleagues talking about like, well, where are the the GI bleed patients? Like, they're not being hospitalized. Yeah. Where are they? Are they at home? Where are the heart attack patients? Like, there's no way they're not having heart yeah. attacks. Like, where are they? Right. You know. And so we're and trying to figure that out and trying to collect data, and it's been really difficult. So I actually think it'll be a little while before we're actually Fair. really, really aware of the true effects 
um, health-wise of what COVID has brought on? Obviously, from a mental health standpoint, you know, quarantine, isolation, mm -hmm. it's affected all of us, um, at least to some extent, mm -hmm. some way more than others. Do you think that this has been a good thing in that we might now better recognize mental health issues in the U.S. because we've somewhat experienced them ourselves? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, unfortunately, I would love to just tell someone something and have them learn it, right? Right. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure all of our parents could attest to that. They've told us a gazillion right. things all the time, and we do not learn them. We wait until we make And we can't use shock therapy and, anymore. Yeah, you know, well, that was never okay. <laughs> treatment resistant depression it's actually mm. quite effective oh but, really yeah. okay but um <laughs> but, to your, but to your question uh i do think that one people are definitely getting more comfortable actually talking about feelings and talking about what they're experiencing um i think that the stigma around mental health is actually just getting a little bit better in the sense that people are aware of the services and they're more willing to go. There's still a large population of people that won't. Right. But I mean, it is better than it used to Indian be. people. Uh, yeah, a lot, <laughs> a lot of people. And so, you know, I think because some of those things are better that people are more willing and able to talk about them. And I think that's just the first step, right? Like talking about them and getting comfortable saying, yeah, you know, I've actually also been anxious. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I also haven't been sleeping that well. Or, and then it just takes one person saying like, well, you know what, like I was seeing a therapist and it really did a number and it, I just feel so much better and it was such a great experience. And I think when people start actually being comfortable and being vulnerable like that and sharing those things, you actually start to influence everyone else. I can't, you know, say how exactly correct that is because you know when my grandmother passed away one of my best friends was like i think you need to go see a therapist and i'm i'm fine she's 95 years old and this is a couple years ago i still go to my therapist yeah. when i get stressed out i mean it was literally one of the most stress relieving things that sounds kind of weird but that you can do to talk to somebody who doesn't have an iron in the fire i guess right. you could say that's non-judgmental that gives you professional advice and you just have that moment to kind of have some you time and vent. Yeah. So when should, okay, this has been an incredible conversation. I have so many more questions for you. I know Taylor does too, and we want to bring you back. We still haven't talked about specific communities and the unique circumstances that they're under. So there's a lot more to talk about, but I think we should leave listeners on at what point should they seek help? So you sought help after a particular passing of a family member. I sought help after my divorce. Is there a time? Is it COVID? Is it at what point or what sign should listeners take away that this is when I should actually get some treatment? Yeah. So a couple things. So most people that end up coming into treatment thought about it multiple times before they actually did it, right? Yeah. Um, I usually say by the time you've thought about it for the first time, you should have already been there. Hmm. You know, because oftentimes we are in denial of the fact that we're at that point un until we get there. You know, my grandmother used to say, if you have to ask the question, you yeah. probably already know the answer. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's good. And and I actually, I, I really think it's just, it just can't hurt. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine. I, I really wish like people went to a mental health professional the way they go to the dentist. You go twice a year, you right. check in, and then there's, but like, I wish it was just something that generally people were like, yeah, this is just something you do for your general health. Like you go to the primary care, you go to a mental health professional, 
it's that stigma we need to overcome that you've been saying we might be getting to thanks to COVID. This is one of the silver linings of COVID. We're talking about it more and we don't have that taboo associated with the way we did. Yeah. Go seek help if you don't feel good. Well, and that's a really good point on go to a therapist like you get your teeth cleaned once mm -hmm. every six months. And or you go to a personal trainer. And you know, if our government really embraced that, it would help, you know, if you think of all the mental health issues down to like school shootings. I mean, that would probably be a really feasible and beneficial thing in the What's long run. What's government for all of us. doing smart policy? <laughs> well, is that what we what we were ending on? That's what we hope. <laughs> at least. Well, this is the takeaway from this, listeners. Thank you for taking this time. We really look forward to coming back with you and following up on some of the open-ended questions that we've started here. And thank you all for tuning in. That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at RiskyBehaviorDC. That's all one word. My handle, at ShutTheChalk. That's S-W-E-T-A-C-H-A-K. Or Taylor's handle, at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That one spelled as it sounds. You can also send us an email at hello.riskybehavior at gmail.com or a voice message at 202-713-5182. Shoot us some science or some shade. Thank you for tuning into Risky Behavior. Till next time.